Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Okay, I want to start with some important news. As many of you know, in addition to being a podcast, Commune is also an online course platform for holistic wellness. We create video courses with world-renowned teachers on topics such as integrative medicine, nutrition, spirituality, meditation, personal growth, relationships, mindful leadership, and even environmental regeneration. By last January, we started experimenting with a format here where once a month, we would release the first few hours of a course in your podcast feed. But that experiment has proved to be so popular that we've decided to launch a new podcast called the Commune Courses Podcast. This new Commune Courses Podcast will be offering free audio excerpts of our most popular courses, essentially the first half of every course every other week. You can click the link in the show notes or search Commune Courses in your podcast app to go listen and subscribe. Already in the feed, you will find several sessions of Dr. Gabor Mate's exceptional course, A Return to Wholeness, waiting for you. Today on the show, we are actually bringing one of those sessions right here as a bit of motivation. Now, in this audio excerpt, Dr. Mate begins by explaining that as humans, we need interconnection. We rely on others to survive, especially as children. Yet, we also strive for authenticity, and this creates an inherent tension. This session explores what is true human nature and how the modern world has warped our understanding of our core needs. So I hope that you find Dr. Mate's words enlightening and helpful, and I hope they inspire you to go listen to more on the Commune Courses podcast. Now, in terms of the what I want to teach, it it um, it, it can be summed up probably in three concepts. One is, as I sit here at this place called the commune, um, in, in this culture, in this society, we there's an assumption which shows up in how we talk talk about things. So that when somebody does something selfish or greedy, what do we say? We say, oh, that's just human nature. But there's an assumption in that about human nature. Interestingly enough, it's rarely the case that somebody does something generous or kind or supportive. People say, oh, that's just human nature. And yet, in actual truth, that is human nature. And the greed and the selfish are not human nature. It's not that people can't be greedy or selfish or aggressive or competitive, individualistic and just plain narcissistic. Obviously, not only can they be, but they often are. And not only can they be, but so can we be. I certainly can. But that doesn't mean it's our nature. It's like, try to understand the zebra. Where would you want to study the zebra? in a zoo, in a small cage in a zoo, or out in the savanna where the zebra evolved and has lived. Well, if you really want to understand the nature of the zebra, you wouldn't study them in a zoo. And, and so drawing conclusions about human nature from 
how we live in this society is like trying to understand a wild animal inside a cage. That's my argument. That that what we consider to be normal, that this normal culture that we have here, there's nothing normal about it in terms of human needs and human potential. In fact, it's that gap between human needs and human potential and the conditions under which we live now that creates so much illness of mind and body, not to mention so much tension, so much strain, so much hostility, so much division in society in general. And so this commune concept actually relates to how human beings evolved. We evolved as communal creatures. We could not have evolved otherwise. And what we call civilization, and you remember <laughs> Mahatma Gandhi's famous quip when he, he said, what do you, he was asked, what do you think about Western civilization? And he said, I think that would be a very good idea. You know? <laughs> and, but what we call civilization, if the existence only of our species, I'm not even talking about other hominins and other human, humans that pre-existed our appearance on the earth, our species 150,000, 200,000 years ago. If you just look at our species, if our existence can be summed up in an hour, then until about six minutes ago, we lived in small band hunter-gatherer groups in a communal context. And we evolved in that, and that is our nature, because that's how nature helped us evolve. Every animal has a particular nature that is suited to its particular environment. Now, humans can adapt to an infinite range of environments, but that doesn't mean we do very well at all of them. So, what is considered normal in this culture, that is to say, what is the statistical norm, it's got nothing to do with what is normal for human beings in general. And it's that gap between the norm in this culture and what is really the norm in terms of human evolution and human requirements and human potential, that is the source of so much dysfunction, whether on the mental, emotional, psychological, spiritual, physiological, or social, political levels. So that this commune concept is really central to the... Um, understanding of human beings and really what this day is about if it's anything about it's about if it's about anything at all it's really what does it mean to be a human being or at least what do i understand what it means to be a human being now i'll quote you from my my, my friend Bessel van der Kolk, the um trauma psychiatrist um uh, he said once that our culture teaches us to focus on our personal uniqueness, but on a deeper level, we barely exist as individual organisms. Now, to the Western mind, that's a very difficult concept. There's nothing difficult about it from the perspective of ancient tradition. So the Buddha, 2,500 years ago, talked about the uh, interconnected core rising of phenomena. But everything arises in connection with everything else. And he gave the example of a, of, a, of a leaf, you know, that the leaf, he says, think of all the conditions that had to go into the creation of a leaf. 
And of course, the leaf contains the sun, the photosynthesis, the light. The leaf contains the earth, the minerals. It contains the sky, the water. The leaf contains the whole world. And the great Buddhist teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh, who died just less than a year ago, he, he, he talked about interbeing. He says, it's not that we are, he says, it's that we inter-are. So what Bessel is saying here from a modern scientific point of view is only what ancient wisdom has asserted since the beginning of time. And what, what I have to emphasize here is that that unity, that oneness, that interconnected nature of the co-arising of phenomena has been amply, more than amply, documented by Western science. So we think we're living in a scientific age, but actually it's a very selective relation to the science that we have. We relate only to the science that justifies or supports this particular way of life, this particular social economic system, this particular way of practicing medicine. But we completely ignore the science that shows the interconnected uh, co-arising of phenomena. So that, that shows up in every realm. Now, my colleague and mentor, Dan Siegel, who's a psychiatrist here in LA, has this concept called interpersonal neurobiology, which is both a way of studying the brain and the mind from multiple different disciplines, but it's also a way of understanding the nature of our brains, which is that our brains, our nervous systems, are not separate, like, like Bessel implies as well, that how I relate to you my energetic state, when I look at you or speak to you or vice versa, actually affects your nervous system. So we co-create each other all the time. This co-creation, this interpersonal neurobiology is the most dominant, of course, when we're small and very much under the influence of our parents and their particular backgrounds and, 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 and uh, vicissitudes or, or triumphs. But it's true all our lives. So our interpersonal nature means that our neurobiology is interpersonal. Now, being a physician, I simply remove the word neuro, uh, neurobiology and I say our, our, our biology is interpersonal. So that what happens to us physiologically, and specifically from the medical point of view, when illness shows up, it is not a unique, isolated event in some isolated, separate physiological organism or organ. But in fact, it's a manifestation of a life lived in a certain context. So my friend, the, the physician and psychiatrist, Luis Mel Madrona, who is, a, who is partly Lakota Sioux background, um, gave me a very interesting example when I talked to him. And he said that in the Lakota tradition, when somebody gets ill, The community says, thank you. Your illness manifests the dysfunction of our community. You're the canary in the mine. So your healing is our healing, and our healing is your healing. Now consider Western medicine. You, you go to a nephrologist with your kidney disease, they don't know about your life, they don't even ask about it. Except maybe you smoke and drink. Cardiologist, neurologist, gastroenterologist, uh, 
dermatologist. Then they never look at it from the communal point of view. They just look at the particular pathology as if it was only a biological manifestation in a particular organ. So that's the Western medicine, and what's in incredibly both interesting and 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 if one allows itself to get emotionally involved, frustrating about it, is that we have all kinds of science to show that that's not how it is. I'll give you three examples. Um, the New York Times recently, the New York Times, by the way, being such a forward-looking, pioneering newspaper, keeps rediscovering the wheel. And uh, three or four weeks ago, no, three or four months ago, they had an article reporting some amazing new finding that women who are depressed and who have breast cancer have a poorer prognosis. In other words, that the mind or emotional states affects the physiology of malignancy. This was presented like big new news, you know. In 1870, there was an American surgeon called uh, James Paget, who's still very remembered in the annals of medicine, who talked about the unavoidable observation about the connection between women's low moods and their risk of malignancy, he said. He said, it's so common, you can't ignore it. He said this 150 years ago. And then the New York Times discovers it three months ago. <laughs> That's one example of the interconnected. Because when somebody is depressed and they have a low mood, that's not isolated either. That happens in a context as well. Very famous Canadian physician who was knighted by Queen Victoria was also one of the founding physicians at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, Sir William Osler. He said, around 1880 or 1890, that rheumatoid arthritis was a disease owing to stress and the vexation. At that time, he had no physiological research to support that assertion. He was just trusting his intuition and his observation. Now, since then, there have been multiple dozens of studies showing a relationship between trauma and stress and rheumatoid arthritis. But it's like it hasn't happened. Because when you go to a rheumatologist, they never ask you about what happened to you in life. In fact, I know a rheumatologist here at UCLA who, uh, having read my book, When the Body Says No, which is about the mind-body connection in health and illness, started asking patients about their life histories and traumas and stresses. And I won't identify them by gender even, because she did. Okay, I just did. <laughs> she said, I quoted her in a book, but, but she said, don't identify me because my colleagues will be so upset. But she says that when she works with patients now, she's got such greater success because she talks to them about their lives. And very often they can do without medication now. So that's the second example. The third example is uh, multiple sclerosis. The first person who described it was a French neurologist, 19th century, sort of a contemporary of Paget's and Osler's. His name was Jean Martin, 
charcoal. And um, he's the one that first named or described this condition. He said it was caused by stress and vexation and grief. Multiple studies since then have shown the accuracy of that observation. We even have the physiological pathways to understand why that would be the case. But it's like, it's ne it's like this science never existed and if, as if this observation has never been made. So that's the first theme here today, is just the interpersonal nature of, and the interconnected nature of all phenomena as um, taught by spiritual traditions and as non-validated by modern science and as virtually completely ignored by modern society. Now there's a reason why that, for that ignoring, which I can talk about later, but it's just a fact. The second theme that I'll be highlighting today, I will um, illustrate by quite a couple of quotations, if you don't mind. Uh, <clears throat> this book, Educated by Tara Westover, how many of you have read this? A few of you have. Well, it's a national bestseller, as it ought to be, and uh, it's just a beautiful read. And it's about the, um, the life trajectory of a young girl who becomes a woman in a fundamentalist, rather traumatized and traumatic, isolated mountain family, and uh, her coming into herself. And, uh, and, and Tara and I actually did an event in New York just a few days ago. Um, so in this chapter 12 or 13, she, her father is very domineering, believes that the end of the world is always coming, one of these fundamentalist days of uh, uh, um, awakening kind of believers, who's terribly disappointed when the year 2000 turned and the world didn't blow up in flames. And Tara has a hard time developing her own point of view in, in the face of her father's dominant fundamentalist uh, fanaticism and also dominating personality. And at one point, still as a teenager, she imagines herself as a woman who's actually separating from the father. So there's this imaginary creature in the scene. So I'll read you what she says here. I tried to imagine what future such a woman might claim for herself. I tried to conjure other scenes in which she and her father were of two minds when she ignored his counsel and kept her own. But my father had taught me that there are no two reasonable opinions to be had on any subject. There's truth and there are lies. I knelt on the carpet, listening to my father, but studying this stranger, this woman that she used to become, and felt suspended between them, drawn to each, repelled by both. I understood that no future could possibly hold them. No identity could tolerate him and her. I would remain a child in perpetuity, always, or I would lose him. And what she's describing here is that a concept that I call the tragic tension between authenticity and attachment. In addition to the interconnected 
nature of, of us. Closely related is this issue of can we be interrelated and connected and still remain our genuine selves? Which in this society is a major theme. And so authenticity versus attachment. <clears throat> now what attachment is, is the drive to be close to another body. So gravity is an attachment drive. It pulls two bodies together. It not only pulls the earth, it not only pulls me towards the earth, but actually I have a gravitational force that pulls the word earth, earth towards me as well. Not that there's any correlation in the force, comparative force, but there is this gravitational force pulling two bodies together. The same thing exists necessarily in human life and in human psychological and emotional life. So we are drawn to attach to another body or other bodies for the sake of being taken care of or for the sake of taking care of the other or to reproduce or to even live. But primarily it's about caretaking because of a human infant at birth is the most um, helpless, most dependent and least mature creature of all mammals. So we have this deep attachment need. But we also have a need for authenticity. And by authenticity, I don't mean any sort of um, fancy new age concept. I'm talking about our capacity to be ourselves. Like Tara is struggling to be herself here with her own concepts, her own interpretations, her own sense of herself. Now, why is that necessary? Why can't we just... The psychologists used to think that human infants are just um, what, are, what is called a tabula rasa, an empty slate. You can just write anything on it and program them any old way. That's kind of the behaviorist view, you know, is that you can just program kids to be any old way. Like you can't program a rat, you know, you... you um, you want them to come to one side of the cage, you put sugar there. You want them to avoid the other side of the cage, you put electrical shocks into the wiring at the bottom of the cage. They'll avoid that side, go to the sugar. So it was thought that human kids are like that. You just kind of program them any old way you want. Turns out it's not like that. Not in the least like that. So that our authentic self is no fancy concept. In fact, it's essential for survival. Because again, if you go back to how we evolved, which is out there in nature, just how long do you survive if you're not in touch with your feelings? If you're not in touch with your gut feelings specifically? So this is a little experiment I do uh, sometimes, so let me do it with this group here. Um, let me ask you to raise your hand if you've ever had the following experience that you had a strong gut feelings about something and you ignored it and then you regretted that afterwards. Just raise your hand. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Let me ask you the obverse question. How many had the experience of having a strong gut feelings, ignoring it and being grateful afterwards? Yeah, a couple. Uh, well, first of all, you can see the ra what the ratio is. It's like three out of 30, so 10%. I would actually, had I the time, um, engage with you in a discussion and you'd probably find out that what you thought was a gut feeling wasn't a gut feeling at all. It was just a strong emotion. And strong emotions are not the same as gut feelings. 
but I won't go into that distinction. Let me allow the 90 to 10%. I think it's 100% to zero, but let, let me allow the, uh, the 90% to 10% ratio just to illustrate how important gut feelings are. Okay, so we have this need to be attached, for sure. And then we have this need to, to be authentic, to be at ourselves. What happens when the two needs collide? What happens when Pero faces a situation that if I want to stay, if I want to be myself, I'll lose my father. Alternately, if I want to be my father, I have to lose myself. Now, she, to her credit, posed this question to herself when she was a teenager, around 16 years of age. But it's not a question she could even have contemplated at age one or two, when the dependence is absolute and the helplessness is complete. So that when children are confronted with this dilemma that I can have my own feelings and my own reactions, but if I do, I will not be accepted. There's no contest. The authenticity gets sacrificed every time. So, so the surrender of authenticity is actually a brilliant adaptation on the part of the organism. Because something in the organism knows, if I stay authentic, if I keep being angry, for example, I won't be accepted. If I'm not accepted, if I'm not attached to, I can't survive. So let's give up the authenticity. Now the problem with adaptations, as, as you know, is they're meant to be situational. They're meant to be context-specific. Context so that once the adaptation is no longer useful or necessary, you just give it up. It would be fine if it worked like that. To give an example, which doesn't much apply to you folks living here in the LA area, but say up in Washington State even, or Northern British Columbia, we live in British Columbia, Canada, it gets really cold in the wintertime. I mean, sub below freezing temperatures, sub below, you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> Very cold. You adapt, you put on warm clothing, layers of it, 40 below, layers of it. That saves your life. But, but what would happen if you're still wearing that same adaptive clothing in the heat of the summer? The same adaptation would kill you now. And what I'm saying is that so much of what happens in illness is the outcome of adaptations in early life that were necessary at the time. But unlike the clothing, which we put on consciously and deliberately, these psychological adjustments that our organisms have to make to maintain our attachment relationships, we're not even aware of them. We think we are them. We think that's our personality. We identify with them. And since our survival was associated with these adaptations, it's terrifying to give them up. Even in adulthood, if we're at all even conscious of them, was the same adaptations that helped to save our lives in one setting now threaten our integrity or our physical, psychological health as adults.
the tension between authenticity and attachment that shows up so often in illness. And um, I find over and over again that when an illness comes along, if people are willing to be curious about it, if they're willing to look at that illness, not just as a piece of bad luck, uh, you know, some random misfortune, but as manifesting something about their lives, they actually learn a, lot of, learn a lot about themselves. And I've known many people who really regained authenticity because they've been through an illness. No, not for a moment do I recommend that way of learning. Um, in fact, much of, not just my teaching, but the teaching of any of us in a trauma world is to help people uh, gain authenticity before some terrible thing happens to them. But I know many examples where people have suffered through illness into truth. And I'm quoting here the Greek playwright Aeschylus, who 2,500 years ago, who in his play, The Agamemnon, said that the way Zeus, the master, created us is that we have to suffer, suffer into truth. Now, one of the intentions of this workshop, and, and certainly my work in general, and of this book specifically, is that people will perhaps learn so that they don't have to suffer, suffer into truth. But from my own personal point of view, I can tell you that it's not an easy process to give up these adaptations and uh, um, perhaps I'm particularly thick-headed, but very often suffering had to knock me on the head several times before I was willing to to, to learn and, 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 to, and to seek the truth. Um, it, it even happened during the writing of this book. Um, when, I think about two years ago now, I was in a real panic about this book. I, I was writing it, but it wasn't going well, and I, 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 I just, I can't do this, it's too much. This time I've stuck my axe into too big a tree, as the Hungarians would say. Bit enough more than I could chew, as you'd say in English. My blood pressure was going up. I mean, my body was really saying no. And I don't have high blood pressure, you know, usually. And so I did something desperate. I mean, you know how desperate I got? I talked to a therapist. And, uh, <laughs> and actually, it was a therapist here in L.A. that somebody put me in touch with. And what I realized is that the problem wasn't the book. The problem was my relationship to the book. I had completely identified with the book. So if the book wasn't going well, I wasn't going well. If the book was to be a failure, I was going to be a failure. And what the therapy helped me do is to just disidentify. Now, in this culture, one of the inauthenticities of the culture is that we identify ourselves with so many externals, how we look, uh, how successful we are, what we own, what we acquire, what we attain, our roles, how do people see us. So we identify with all these externals. Then depending how those externals go, we either feel good or terrible about ourselves because we identify. Now the word identi identify 
it's got a Latin source, idem, which is the same, and facera, to make. So we make ourselves the same as our roles in the world and as people's perceptions of us. And you have a great example in Facebook. I mean, even the name Facebook, think about it. Facebook. It's the face that you present to the world. They don't call it real book or authenticity book. They call it Facebook. Now, my friend, the trauma psychologist, Peter Levine, talked about Botox. He wrote an article once about Botox that he knows of young women who Botox their faces. And what Botox does is it relaxes the muscles temporarily, paralyzes them, actually, so that you have fewer wrinkles and so on. But it also means that they can't show appropriate emotion in response to their children. Now, can you imagine for the child what that means? And uh, Peter points out that the internet itself has Botoxed the whole culture. Everybody's presenting their wrinkleless face to the world. And <laughs> what is there a replacement for? You know what's a replacement for? Attachment that we don't have, the connection that we're missing. Because what do people have on Facebook? They have friends. That, 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 that's an attachment dynamic. What do people do on Facebook? They like each other, which is an attachment dynamic. But it's completely inauthentic because of what people like and why they befriend us is what we present to them. They don't know our true nature. We don't even know our true nature. We're just desperate to present the brightest face to the world. Thomas Merton, the Catholic monk and um, spiritual teacher, wrote in his biography, um, Seven Story Mountain, what a strange existence it is to live only in other people's imaginations. And this was multiple decades before Facebook. So the inauthenticity is deep in our culture. And not only is it deep, it's rewarded. It's rewarded. And you can see that in the comet-like demise of so many of our celebrities who could not have attained higher states of adulation and public worship then they flame out tragically because what the public worship wasn't the real person. They didn't even know the real person. And the real person was suffering from the inauthenticity deep inside. So they die a miserable death like an Elvis or a Marilyn at the height of fame. So this tension between authenticity and attachment then is a theme that is with us since early childhood, and then in this culture is actually rewarded. In um, an introduction to this book, um, we quote uh, the great writer David Foster Wallace, 
I mean, I don't know if you've read his book, Infinite Chess, but the title is actually accurate because the book is infinite, like it goes on forever. <laughs> and, and, and half the time you have no idea what he's talking about or where he's going. You're just marveling at the actual uh, incredible artistic skill with which he uses words. Doesn't care what he's saying, <laughs> you know? But he gave a commencement address at a college some years before he committed suicide. <clears throat> so I'll read a quote here from the book. The late David Foster Wallace, master wordsmith, author, and essayist, once opened a commencement speech with a droll parable that well illustrates the trouble with normality. The story concerns two fish crossing aquatic paths with an elder of their species who greets them jovially. Morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over to the other and says, goes, what the hell is water? <laughs> the point Wallace wanted to leave his audience pondering was, quote, that the most obvious, ubiquitous, and important realities are often the ones hardest to see and talk about. On its surface, he allowed, that might sound like what he calls a banal platitude, but, quote, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult existence, banal platitudes can have life or death importance. So these, these realities that are huge and encompass our lives, where we're too close to them to see them, just like the fish don't experience the water as water, They have deep implications for, for our health, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. So that, again, to come back to this concept of normal, what, we've, what we have become normalized to is a world in which our communal nature is denied and even derided, in which the very opposite is uh, glorified, and rewarded with wealth and power, and in which the tension between inauthenticity and attachment is, is not even recognized, and so that people are always induced to go for the attachment, to be part of the group, to think as the group, to look like the group, to dress like the group, to vote the same politics, to think the same thoughts, never to have an independent thought of their own. And then, no wonder that so many, then, so many of us get to midlife and we start wondering, well, who the heck am I anyway? And whose life am I leading? Which again is not a modern thought, because um, Dante, uh, who wrote in the late 13th century, I think, or was it the early 13th century? Uh, in his Inferno, in his Divine Comedy, he begins, the Inferno is divided, oh, sorry, the Divine Comedy is divided into three parts, Inferno or Hell, Purgatory, or, or, or Heaven, really, Paradiso, Paradise. And these are all states of spiritual blindness or realization, is what they really are about. They're not about some apocalyptic vision of Hell and Heaven. They're about the human state of realization. 
And it begins with the inferno. And its first line is, midway, midway through life, I lost the path. And I don't know how I ended up in this dark forest. And then he has to get back to his true nature. Where does he have to go first? He has to go down into hell. He has to deal, deal with all the trauma and all the inauthenticity. And only when he's done that, he can move to purgatory where he's purged. Purgatory, in, in his sense, is not a bad place. It's a place where there's suffering, but there's suffering into truth. And only then can he ascend to the spiritual realization of paradise. So in a desperate attempt to uh, learn something, I dictate a lot of stuff on my cell phone in the hope that by doing so, I will actually learn it. It doesn't quite work that way, but, but I have a great collection of quotes. So the first one is from Rainer Maria Rilke, and he says in his letters to a young poet, something that speaks to the sense of authenticity versus attachment. And he writes, do not allow yourself to be confused in your aloneness by something within you that wishes to be released from it. This very wish, if you will calmly and deliberately use it as a tool, will help to expand your solitude into the far distant realms. So explore your aloneness. Don't reject it. People have, he says, with the help of so many conventions, resolved everything the easy way on the easiest side of the easy. But it is clear that we must embrace struggle. Every living thing conforms to it. Everything in nature grows and struggles in its own way, establishing its own identity, insisting on, its all, on it at all costs against all resistance. In other words, he's saying it's our nature to be authentic. But we have to struggle to be authentic in this world. Thank you for listening to this excerpt from Dr. Gabor Mate's program, A Return to Wholeness. This is just a taste of what is waiting for you on the new Commune Courses podcast. So click the link in the show notes or search Commune Courses in your podcast app to go listen and subscribe. And I highly encourage you to do so right now because Dr. Mate's lessons will not stay in that feed forever. And while we're hovering on the topic of subscribing, please subscribe to this feed, the Commune Podcast, for notifications of my most recent interviews and musings. We have a great new interview coming to you this Thursday. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for being here. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.